0: Nats Chat is brought to you by Walters. Catch the rest of the NCAA tournament at Walters on the 30 plus televisions available.
1: Plan your opening day at
2: Walters. Visit waltersdc.com and click on reservations. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Bright sunshine, not a cloud of the sky. The temperature in the mid 70s, a perfect day for baseball at
0: Clover Park in Port St. Lucie, Florida. Spring training baseball, it's the Washington Nationals. And welcome to Nats Chat for Tuesday, March 29th, 2022, along with Nats insider Mark Zuckerman of MassInsports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. We are a little more than a week away from opening day on April 7th here in the Washington, D.C. area. As we tape this installment of the Nats Chat podcast late Monday, it feels like we're in late December and not late March. So the weather better be improving soon. Mark remains in West Palm Beach, Florida, site of Nat spring training. So we can all be jealous of our guy, Mark. Uh, Just do not take out any frustration on him. We're not going to have a uh, Will Smith, Chris Rock-like incident on this podcast, right, Mark? Maybe Bryce Harper, Jonathan Papelbon, but never a Will Smith, Chris Rock-like incident on this podcast. Am I correct in saying that?
1: Well, you're correct in saying that because, Al, I think if I attempted to do what Will Smith did, Chris Rock was impressive enough how he held his ground. I'm confident that you would not budge an inch off of anything I attempted to throw in your direction. So I'm smarter than that. I'm not going to attempt anything like that.
0: I wonder if the reliever Will Smith would have had more success than the uh, actor-slash-singer Will Smith.
1: Or the catcher Will Smith.
0: There's two of them. (laughs) I guess we'll never find that answer out, and that's probably a a good thing. Well, we have a lot to get to on the show, including maybe, possibly... An increased likelihood of Cade Cavalli pitching at the major league level sooner rather than later. Maybe even possibly making the Nats opening day roster. Maybe. We'll ask Mark about that. Also, another player from the Nats past has been brought back. You can't make this stuff up. Tyler Clippard is back eight years after he last pitched for the Nats. I love this. This trend is unbelievable to me. But we on Monday had rather significant Nats news and the news had to do with things, uh, not trending well for two young nationals players who ideally would be key pieces in the Nats rebuild. Talking about Luis Garcia and Victor Robles. We'll get to Robles shortly, but the Nats on Monday afternoon announced some roster moves and among the moves was optioning Luis Garcia to AAA Rochester. Now, in the moment, that's not really a shocker because things certainly have been trending this way, but geez end of last season, certainly as of, I don't know, a month ago, I think most people would have figured Luis Garcia is a starting infielder, middle infielder for the Nats in 2022. And instead, he's going to be beginning the season in the minors. What is this truly about, in your opinion? And is this an indictment of where Luis Garcia is at or not necessarily?
1: Yeah, I think it is an indictment of where he's at. Look, we kind of hinted at this last week, you could start to see the trend moving in this direction when they signed Cesar Hernandez and made him their second baseman. When they re-signed Alcides Escobar and Davey Martinez about a week ago said that Alcides is trending to be his starting shortstop, you kind of felt like, well, where does that leave Luis Garcia? And what I think you're seeing here is an acknowledgment that he's just not big league ready yet in their mind that he is a little inconsistent. Let's remember he's still very young and the reasons that he was up in the big leagues the last two seasons were because of either injuries or trades and maybe that's an acknowledgement from their side that they would not have called him up based on merit, that it was out of necessity and that he does need some more time. So he's an exciting player. He has done some things that make you turn your head and say, wow, they may have something here. But I think internally and really... Across all of baseball, you would never saw him ranked among the Cade Cavalli's, Brady House's top prospects that are out there. He really wasn't that. He just happened to come up sooner than a lot of those guys and had some nice moments. But to me, this is an indication that they really don't think he's ready yet. And they would rather go with some established players at second base and shortstop, even if that seems counterproductive toward the long-term goal of what they're trying to do here.
0: So this coming season will be Garcia's age 22 season. He overall has struggled offensively at the major league level, 386 major league plate appearances over the last two seasons uh, on base percentage of just 285 slugging at just 395. But he did end last season hitting well. He last September had a 477 slugging percentage. And the other thing is, you know, for all of the talk about his defense, and look, we watched the games. We saw that he, at times, was great, and at times, he struggled. But Luis Garcia, last season, actually finished plus two defensive runs saved at second base. I mean, I'm not here to say that he's great and totally polished and, you know, should be the Nets everyday second baseman for years to come. At the same time, I don't know, man. Like, it doesn't seem like it's been that bad. Like, I get it. With Carter Kibum, it's been pretty bad. With Victor Robles, the last two years, it's been pretty bad. I thought we saw enough good from Luis Garcia as last season went on to warrant him beginning this season at the major league level, at least give him some more opportunity. I have to say, in the bigger picture, I'm surprised at what's happened here. Like, there doesn't seem to be much uh, length on the leash for Luis Garcia. And I get that he's not, you know, a top 100 prospect, but I thought he showed enough last year to warrant being given more of an opportunity here.
1: Yeah, I thought so if it was going to be at second base. And unfortunately, what happened was when they signed Cesar Hernandez, remember, that goes all the way back to November prior to the lockout that they signed him. That to me was an indication that something was up there because Hernandez is a second baseman. They paid him $4 million, so he's going to play there. And I just don't know that they really see Garcia as a shortstop at the big league level. He's played a little bit there. It's been kind of sloppy, also at AAA, that was the case. So if second base isn't available to you, are you going to try to force the issue and put a young kid at shortstop where he could make a ton of errors this year? Maybe that's still fine in the grand scheme. Maybe it is important to just see how he handles all that. But what I'm left with is this idea that, yes, even though they are rebuilding, even though it is about the long term. I think they're also attempting to put the best quality product they can out there to start the year, whatever that looks like wins and losses wise. And then keep in mind, all these guys are on one-year deals. So if Cesar Hernandez plays well out of the leadoff spot and at second base, then maybe in July, he's getting moved for another prospect and all of a sudden second base opens again for Luis. So maybe that's part of the equation. And that's why I keep saying as much as we love to focus on who's on the opening day roster... I'm most interested in who's on the roster later this summer, because I think that's a better indication of who fits into their long-term plan.
0: Yeah. I mean, if the idea is to enhance Cesar Hernandez as a trade ship, I can buy that. I can accept that. I think that there's some logic behind that. I guess it's just really disappointing that They really don't think that highly of Luis Garcia. Like, I think that's become pretty clear. You know, they've given him the Eric Fetty treatment of he's been up and down and up and down. And now he's going back down. And who knows when he'll be brought back up. And apparently, whatever strides we saw him make last season, they, as in Nationals management, weren't all that impressed by. That's, you know, pretty obvious with something like that. So we have what's happening with Luis Garcia. And then also on Monday was this notable development with Victor Robles. The Nats on Monday afternoon had Victor Robles play in a minor league exhibition game and had D. Strange Gordon as the team starting center fielder in the major league exhibition game. Now, it's no secret that Victor Robles has struggled brutally this Grapefruit League season. He in Grapefruit League games as of Monday, was 0-11 with a hit-by-pitch. He obviously struggled mightily last season to where, remember, he was optioned at AAA Rochester last August 31st and then never came back up. I think that is so telling. They sent him down in late August and never brought him back up again. And, you know, there's been this giant question mark now with Robles of where exactly is he at. Now, we have seen this before where, Late in preseason action, late in exhibition season action, there's an interesting turn of events in terms of who's starting, and that proves to be telling regarding the regular season. We've seen this with Carter Keeb, where he gets talked about as everyday third baseman, and then all of a sudden, late in preseason, oh, wait a second, he's not starting today, and it turns out he ends up not starting much as the season gets going. So I think this is significant, but what do you think? And I mean, do you think the Nats right now are actually leaning toward having destrange strange Gordon as the opening day center fielder.
1: No, I don't see that. I do think that D is trending in a good direction to make the team. Between Garcia being sent down, another move they made was Lucius Fox being sent down, a utility infielder who came from the Orioles and actually turned a few heads this spring with some nice play. You start now removing other bench players from the equation, and I do think there is a utility spot in theory for D Gordon. But they wanted to just get a look at him in center field. He has not played it very much in his career. He's mostly an infielder. He's played some left field. I think what this is more a sign of, well, a couple of things here. I definitely get the sense that they feel like Lane Thomas is best suited defensively in left field as opposed to center. There was a ball the other day in uh, Port St. Lucie, a drive to the straightaway center field to the track, and Thomas... Came up short on it, kind of misplayed it at the wall. We've seen some of those things. He's not Victor Robles out there. Let's make that clear. That's not who he is. And I think they feel like he is best suited defensively in left field. Now, if that's happening, then who's in center? Well, there really isn't anybody else besides Robles. So what's going on with Robles? You gave the numbers. They're not real good. He hasn't looked good at the plate. The last couple of days, Davey Martinez and Darnell Coles, their new hitting coach, have been working with him on a little swing adjustment, raising his hands a little higher at the setup position to eliminate some movement and, in theory, quicken the pace of his bat. So they were working with him in the cage on that. They wanted him to work in minor league games where when they do that, and for people who don't understand, it's not just like he's in the lineup at a Triple A game. What they do is they send a guy over there and there are multiple games going on, double-A and triple-A on side-by-side fields, major leaguers can just lead off every inning if they want, never play the field, and bounce back and forth between fields. So you can get eight or nine at bats in the course of an hour. And they do that for somebody who they think needs the work against live pitching. So that's what the plan was for him here on Monday. Now let's see, come Tuesday, is he back in the big league lineup again? If he's not, then that's more of a red flag. But I think they'd want to give him a chance to work on those things. I think ultimately, Victor Robles is their preferred center fielder with Lane Thomas in left. If they don't think Robles is ready for it, if they think he needs to go back down, then Thomas slides to center, and now you have a mishmash of guys in left field. But I don't think that they're seriously looking at D. Strange Gordon as a starting center fielder.
0: It's not a great picture in terms of, okay, young Nationals players trending in a positive direction. Luis Garcia demoted, Victor Roble struggling and playing in minor league exhibition games on Monday. Carter Keboom, look, his career at this point, you have to wonder about with this elbow situation that he's dealing with, you know, coupled with his struggles. Like these are three guys who a year ago, certainly two years ago, we would have looked at as potential foundational pieces for the Nats moving forward. To me, it's discouraging that we're, we are where we are with all three of these guys, and the season hasn't even started. Now, obviously, perceptions can change, and maybe uh, two months from now, we look at these guys, at least two of them, because Carter will probably still be out in a much different way. But, you know, you're a 97 lost team. You're trying to get younger and better. These are not good developments here for the Nats. What's transpiring, especially with Garcia and Robles. Yeah,
1: let's remember why the Nats got into the position they were in last July where they were selling everybody off. They were in that position because their veteran players, the hallmark of their team when they won the World Series, was starting to either get hurt or in some cases be less effective. And they did not have the young talent to then supplant them or to fill those spots and keep everything afloat. And included in that are Robles and Kibum in particular as guys who were supposed to help offset the losses of say Anthony Rendon in Robles's case to you know make up for you know when Kyle Schwarber got hurt last year to have another productive outfielder so those guys and the lack of quality internal options to take over when the bigger names got hurt is kind of why they're at where they're at now so yes you would love for them to be a part of the next wave ultimately But I don't really look at them necessarily as they're the future. They're kind of the present right now. And if they don't figure it out, they may not be part of the future. Ultimately, the roster that's going to be here in a couple of years that wins, that they hope is going to win, I think a lot of the guys we haven't seen yet, either because they're still in the minors or they haven't been drafted yet or they haven't been acquired yet.
0: Yeah. But if these guys aren't going to pan out, then any notion of this being a quick rebuild, a quick turnaround, I think really starts to go bye-bye. Like the idea of this rebuild not taking long was always predicated on people who you already have working out and then you know you add some other key pieces like, say, a Brady house. If Robles is a lost cause, if Garcia isn't going to be anything more than a utility infielder, if Keyboom is a lost cause, what other position players do they have in terms of promising guys Beyond Brady House. Like who else is there? Like the fact that they haven't drafted (laughs) that they haven't drafted these key foundational pieces yet. I mean, again, it's discouraging if you're a Nats fan. Like, we haven't even welcomed these guys into the organization yet. I mean, you're talking years now in terms of like when the Nats might be good again, if in fact that's the case.
1: You're not wrong. It could be. I've mentioned this before. I've made comparisons to this year and twenty ten. And if you look at the twenty ten roster, there were a few guys Who were foundational pieces for the future. There were a lot of guys who were not. There were a lot of placeholders on that team. And the players who were there in 2012 when they finally won the division had just come in the last year or two. And maybe that's the path we're headed down here.
0: Hey, guys. Al Galdi here for Window Nation. Spring has started and so, too, has Window Nation's start of spring sale. With up and down temperatures, is it difficult to stay comfortable in your home? Uh, Your windows may be ineffective, maybe more ineffective than a bad bullpen. And who wants that? But the good news is that you can upgrade your windows with Window Nation. Beat the spring rush at Window Nation. And get special spring savings. Mention my name, Al Galdi, and get two free windows with every two that you buy. There is no limit. Plus, make no down payments and pay no interest for two full years. Start enjoying energy savings now with new Window Nation windows, all while upgrading the look and feel of your home. Call 866-90-NATION or visit windownation.com. Again, mention my name, Al Galdi. Get two free windows with every two that you buy, no limit, plus make no down payments and pay no interest for two full years. Call 866-90-NATION or visit windownation.com. That's 866-90-NATION or windownation.com. And tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent you.
1: and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.
0: The 0-1, runner goes from first, now stops and a drive well hit to left center field. Ranging back, Hampson, to the warning track, to the wall, climbing the wall, and there it goes! thomas with a three-run homer to the first row of the brew house red seats and the nationals lead it now six to two home run number five for lane thomas yet another big hit for the nationals center fielder All right, you mentioned Lane Thomas, so he was a real bright spot as last season went on. You know, it's easy to forget things about last year, but Mike Rizzo incredibly ends up trading away John Lester, finds a taker for Lester, gets Lane Thomas from the St. Louis Cardinals, and Lane Thomas, over 206 plate appearances last season for the Nats, a 133 OPS+. plus. He registered a war per baseball reference of 1.3, and it's certainly looking like he's going to be playing a lot for the Nats in 2022, maybe as a starting left fielder, maybe at least as part of some sort of rotation in the outfield. Davey Martinez seems pretty set on Cesar Hernandez as a leadoff man. We did see a good bit of Lane Thomas in the leadoff spot last season. Why isn't Lane Thomas even being considered for the leadoff spot? And more generally speaking, what do the Nats think they have in Lane Thomas?
1: So I think they're still kind of trying to figure that out. When they made that trade, I think they looked at that as a best case scenario, fourth outfielder type, like a right-handed Andrew Stevenson, which for two months of John Lester was a great trade. That was perfectly acceptable. And then all of a sudden he starts playing and he does so well and he takes over center field from Robles and over 45 games, he was lights out. And now all of a sudden you have to reevaluate and say, well, what do we actually have here? And I'm not sure they know the answer to that yet. The only way you're going to find out is keep playing him and see what he can handle. Now, likewise, I'm a little surprised that he hasn't been viewed as their leadoff hitter going into this year. But I do think part of that is Davey looking at him and thinking that he could actually be productive hitting behind some of the big boys driving in runs. If Soto, Cruz, Bell, Ruiz are all on base. Lane Thomas could be hitting sixth or even seventh behind that and have a lot of RBI opportunities, driving runs, and maybe they view him more in that realm than they do as the table setter. Now, he did great in the leadoff spot, but it's so hard to really know when you're talking about a 45-game sample late in the season that was so unexpected. I think he would rather go with a little more known quantity in Cesar Hernandez for now, put Thomas further down, and see how he does there, but again, with so many things this happens to us every year. We focus on what the opening day lineup is. These never stay the same. You know, you try something in an opening day, you try it for a week. Remember, Victor Robles as the leadoff hitter last year. How long did that last? Didn't last at all. So would it shock me if at some point Lane Thomas is leading off again? No, I would not be shocked if that happens. Maybe that is ultimately where he fits in best.
0: Yeah, I mean... Look, nobody can pretend like he or she knows with certainty what Lane Thomas is. I guess I would just say 206 plate appearances. It's not like he just got hot for a few weeks in September. Like he had a nice sustained run with the Nats. Like it was one of the real bright spots as last season went on the work of Lane Thomas. And he was consistent. You know, it wasn't like he did all of his damage in one month or something like that. Like over his 45 games, he was stunningly productive. So Hopefully that's someone who does end up proving to be somewhat of a building block here for the Nationals moving forward. I want to ask you about Cade Cavalli. Look, I get that it's still more likely than unlikely that he begins the season in the minors. I I totally understand that. At the same time, I don't know, maybe I'm reading too much into this, but I thought it was interesting what Davey Martinez said about Cavalli after his most recent exhibition outing. This past Friday, A game against the St. Louis Cardinals. Cavalli was a starting pitcher. Now, the final line wasn't pretty. Three runs in three innings, but all of the runs came in one inning, the bottom of the second. He had three strikeouts in three innings. His velocity was really good. His average fastball velocity, 97.4 miles per hour. His fastball topped out At 98.5, and when you combine that with what he did in his initial exhibition game outing this Grapefruit League season, three scoreless innings with six strikeouts in relief work in a game against the Houston Astros on March 20th, you said, all right, I mean, number one pitching prospect in the organization. We like what we're seeing here. And then Davey, after the game, when asked what's next for Cavalli, says, quote, I think we'll keep him here and let him throw again in five days, and then we'll see where we're at, end quote. Cavalli was among the non-roster invitees to Nats camp. He still has not been cut from Nats camp. Again, I understand he's probably not going to begin the season at the major league level, but is there maybe more of a chance of that now than there was before? Is there maybe more of an opportunity here for Cavalli to pitch at the major league level sooner rather than later? What do you think the Nats are thinking right now with Cavalli?
1: They are more open to it, I think, now than maybe they were when camp started. Now, he's going to start somewhere on Wednesday. We don't know the yet as we're taping this where that's going to be. They play the Cardinals again on Wednesday. The way this unfortunately this spring schedule works, they play the same team every fifth day. So you don't necessarily want your guys, your pitchers facing the same lineups over and over again. And for that reason Josiah Gray is not going to face the Astros on Tuesday. He's going to pitch in a minor league game while a bunch of relievers pitch in the big league game. So on Wednesday It's either Cavalli or Anibal Sanchez. Last time around, Cavalli faced the Cardinals, Sanchez pitched in a minor league game. This time around, they're still deciding what they want to do. Do they want to get another look at Cavalli, see how he does? Do they say, you know what? Ultimately, Anibal is going to be in the opening day rotation. He needs to face big leaguers. Let's have Cavalli face minor leaguers, and then we'll make our decision. So we're going to find out in the next 24 hours what that is going to be. But I'll say this. He looked legitimate against the Cardinals, and he was facing legitimate hitters. Goldschmidt, Arenado, Carlson, O'Neill. wasn't the entire Cardinals starting lineup, but it was a lot of them. thought it was good. Filled the zone up, um, attacked hitters, and just, you know, tried tried my best. And uh,
0: I'm very confident still.
1: And he looked the part. He looked legitimate. The first time through the order was fantastic. He did run in some trouble that one inning. It was, you know, maybe good to see. For everyone to understand that he's not perfect and that when he falls behind in the count, especially he, uh, you know, has to throw the ball over the plate and get hit hard. But overall, it was hard not to come away impressed with him the whole spring. It's hard not to come away impressed. And I think what's happening right now is that the coaching staff in the front office are saying, all right, we expected all along that we're not going to see him until probably May or June. But when you put him out there right now and compare him to what their other options are it's hard to justifiably say that he's worse than the other five guys. He's not. Reminds me of Strasburg in 2010. You knew he was good enough. He was better than their alternatives, but ultimately they had to stick with their plan, give him some time at AAA, and then he was called up later on. So we'll see. My hunch is still knowing the innings that they're trying to limit him to and maybe not trying to put too much in him. Remember, he struggled at AAA late last season, that he is going to start at Rochester for at least a month or something like that before they call him up. But he's still here. And as long as he's still here, there's a chance that he makes the opening day rotation.
0: So those Davy comments, because I thought, OK, maybe Davy's just trying to keep Cavalli motivated and he doesn't just want to say, well, no, he's going to start the season in the minors. Like, no, he wanted to kind of keep that carrot dangling so that Cavalli continues to pitch well and then you demote him. But you think that those comments were legit, that there is an openness here to Cavalli maybe making the opening day roster. I mean, I think that would be really exciting. I think that that would add some juice to the beginning of this Nat season if he made the team.
1: No, it absolutely would. Now, let's, you know, say being open to it is not the same as saying, like, we think there's a good chance. I think it's still slim. But you know, the door is maybe open a little bit more than it was at the outset. And I think it's also an acknowledgement that this is really the front office's call more than Davey. You know, Mike Rizzo assembles a roster and Davey Martinez's job is now to use them as he sees fit. If you ask Davey, who would your five best starters be? Kate Cavalli is going to be on that list. Yes. But he also has to understand where the organization is coming from and what the long-term plan is here and all that. What they want to avoid remember when Lucas Giolito first came up? It was a little different circumstances, but he came up and the team was in the middle of a pennant race. He had a couple of bad starts and they sent him down. Then they call him back up again, not so great, back down. When they call Cavalli up, they want it to be for good, I think. I don't think they want to put him in a position where maybe he does fail. You know, those first couple starts that he would have could be the Mets and the Braves. Do you want to throw him out there like that? What if it doesn't go well Are you sticking with him? Are you saying, you know what, we do need to send you back down? And what does that do for a kid? Let's remember, didn't pitch professionally in 2020 because there was no minor league season and pitched last year very well, but started at single A, went to double A, and then finally hit a wall a little bit at triple A. So it's not just about talent. There is a legitimate progression question here and whether it's best for him to have some success at triple A before they put him in the big leagues.
0: Yeah. There also is still the service time thing where if you wait a while and he doesn't finish among the top vote getters in National League Rookie of the Year or National League Cy Young or National League MVP, then you get that extra year of team control. So, I mean, I think that still does enter into the thinking. Yeah, it's funny. MLB Pipeline just came out with its most recent ranking of the top 100 prospects in baseball. Cavalli is number 39. I mean, it's been a while, I guess, probably since Giolito that the Nats have had a pitcher ranked this highly maybe josiah gray but he was acquired by a trade last year like a guy who had been in the organization for a while who ascends to that kind of a ranking you know a top 40 ranking among all prospects in the sport so look i mean he looks the part six four, 240 that's how you draw him up in the lab you know so whenever he makes his major league debut uh, it's going to be exciting and maybe that ends up happening sooner rather than later <music>
1: Hey, Nats fans, are you looking to buy or sell a home or an investment property? If so, contact Jamie Coppersmith and the Coppersmith Group at McInerney Associates. A huge Nats fan right from the get-go in 2005, Jamie has repeatedly been recognized by Washingtonian Magazine as a top-producing real estate agent across the DMV. Referred to by a client as a Jedi Master of Real Estate, he will bring his expertise to bear on your behalf helping you understand and navigate this challenging real estate market. Jamie is a five-tool agent who's as patient as Juan Soto at the plate. He has his own version of Moneyball, a strategic and statistical market-based analysis that balanced with a deep respect for your specific real estate needs, goals, and timeline. So, whether buying or selling, call Jamie Coppersmith today at 202-525-7471 or visit his website at thecoppersmithgroup.com. That's Coppersmith, with a K.
0: Giants trying to find some late offense. Last of the eighth, top of the order, as they are finally into the Washington bullpen. Doug Fister was splendid today. Seven shutout innings as he yields to the tough right-hander, Tyler Clippard. And Tyler Clippard, what a great fastball changeup combination. Start him off with a
1: changeup. He's looking to step on the gas and take it off in the way that he tries to get hitters
0: out. Softly to first, one away. Well, a man who made his major league debut many years ago and was outstanding for the Nationals for years now, amazingly, is back with the Nats. If nothing else, this has been a reunion camp for the Nationals in 2022. Annabal Sanchez, Sean Doolittle, Gerardo Parra, and now Tyler Clippard. Clippard is back. We on Saturday learned that the Nats had signed Clippard to a minor league contract. This season would be his age 37 season. He last pitched for the Nats in 2014. He, since pitching for the Nats, has become a big-time journeyman. He's pitched for nine different major league teams over the last, what is it, seven seasons, 2015 through 2021. And, you know, he's still a good pitcher. I I think this needs to be made clear. Anibal Sanchez has been bad in recent years, didn't even pitch in the majors last year. Sean Doolittle has been bad in recent years. Clifford is still quite good. And so I'm a little surprised, first of all, that he was available on a minor league contract. But I actually don't look at this as, oh, here we go again, you know, the nostalgia Nats trying to recreate the past. Like, no – I think Clifford could actually end up being good for them and end up being a trade chip for them. He is insanely durable. He had that shoulder issue last year. That's basically like the only major injury he's ever had in his major league career. And why not? When you're talking about starting pitchers and position players, I think those are guys you draft and develop. I think with relievers, man, it's kind of like close your eyes and just hope for the best. You know, it's like it's a hodgepodge. It's year by year. You don't really draft and develop relievers. You turn failed starters into relievers. So I think for a rebuilding team, you look at the bullpen separately almost than you do from the rotation and the lineup. And so I'm fine with the Clifford signing. I just, I mean, I do think it's funny that we have another ex-nat back with the team, but do you think it's safe to say he's going to make the team or is, is there some question with that?
1: Well, if he doesn't make it, it's only because he got here late and might need a little more time to get ready. So it's a minor league contract, which means, you know, he's kind of understands the deal and could report to AAA to start the year. This is another weird thing, Al, that we're going to be dealing with here in the next week. The AAA season is actually going to start before the major league season. They're breaking camp in a couple of days. It's a little bit odd because of the lockout that didn't affect AAA. So you may see some players go there to start pitching in games And then a week or two later, get called up to the big leagues once they're fully ready. And I think that could be the case for Tyler. But I agree. I think they signed him to make the team ultimately, whether it's April 7th or April 15th, whatever it ends up being. And you're absolutely right in that in a position that, as we've talked about so many times, is so volatile and so many guys, you don't know what you're going to get from year to year. He is as reliable as they have come. Obviously, for the Nationals from 2009 to 14, was phenomenal. 268 ERA, a 1047 whip, two all star appearances, still a club record 414 pitching appearances. Nobody has come close topping that. And it was what, 72 or more appearances every season from 2010 to 14. Now, since then, you listed you know, all those teams he's been with, but he's still been good. From 2015 to 21 to 347 ERA, 1.13 whip, and this is the important one, averaging 55 appearances per season. Last year, like you said, the only year he dealt with any kind of injury, it was a shoulder. He came back the second half of the season for Arizona, was actually pretty good. So he's feeling good about himself. I think they like this move a lot. And more so than even Doolittle, Will Harris, or some of these other guys they have, he actually might come into the season as the most reliable guy in the bullpen. And somebody I have a hunch, you know, again, it may be a week or two after opening day, but once he's there, he's going to be pitching some high leverage innings late in games.
0: Yeah, and a potential trade piece for the Nationals come July. All these potential trade chips aren't going to pan out, but if a few of them do, then you can add to that prospect inventory and hopefully, you know, get the rebuild moving along here as rapidly as is realistically possible. It's interesting to me, though, like, okay, Clippard was out there to be had on a minor league deal. The Nats signed Steve Ciszek for like nothing. That was a major league deal. Ciszek's been good. I guess is the market just over flooded with relievers and just over flooded with free agents in general? Like You would think a contender would have an eye on a Clippard or a Ciszek, given each guy's track record.
1: So I think what happened, these are the guys who were really impacted the most by the lockout and the rush to get to spring training and teams knew They had some big holes to fill, and you saw the big names go off the board, and then they're finally getting around now to the rest of them, and relievers are, you know, just not thought of the same way. And what we were just talking about, how he could be a trade chip and how volatile relievers are, I wouldn't be surprised if I'm a GM of a contending team. Unless I have major holes in my bullpen right now, I might be willing to start the season with what I have, and then come July, let's see who is having a good year on the non-contending teams and try to acquire them. It's honestly a tactic that Mike Rizzo has used at times in the past when they've been in the other position of trying to contend. And they've gone into some season with some pretty bad bullpens, as we know, or, you know, inexperienced bullpens. And then come July, he goes and finds a Daniel Hudson who's already having a good year. So maybe it's that. But I do think for the most part, those relievers and still some bench players that are out there are the biggest victims of the lockout because in a normal winter You might have that run on, you know, the big name stars in December, early January, and then eventually get to that point. Okay. We're going to go to the relievers now. This year, there just wasn't enough time and teams weren't, you know, really that into spending money on relievers when camps are already opening.
0: Yeah, it's funny. We had that trend a few years ago where teams actually were spending big money on relievers. Guys like Kenley Jansen and Aroldis Chapman and Mark Melanson. And those contracts really didn't work out. So I think teams now are kind of back to doing things the way that things had been done prior to that, which is you don't spend big money on relievers, which probably is the way to go.
1: And yet, as we've seen, the track that the game is going is that starting pitching is being devalued and teams that win are the ones that have deep bullpens, but nobody wants to spend money on it.
0: I know. It's hard right now to articulate what is the right philosophy with pitching, because I don't think there is one way. It's kind of like you got to figure it out on your own. And, you know, that's why what the Nats did in 2019 was so spectacular with the great starting pitching, the atrocious bullpen, but then using the starters as relievers and then leaning on basically two relievers that postseason in Doolittle and Hudson. I don't know, though, how realistic that is moving forward. Like, can you still build a team, especially when you're a rebuilding team? Can you still try to rebuild and say, "Okay, we are a starting pitching first team. Starting pitching is the foundation upon which we're going to build our success. I mean, it sounds great. I don't know how realistic it is in 2022. I guess we'll find out because we know this is what Mike Rizzo believes in.
1: I was just going to say that is certainly Mike Rizzo's philosophy. That hasn't changed. They may be new names, but he believes ultimately you win with starting pitching above all else.
0: Well, speaking of starting pitching, you wrote about this recently. We saw him pitch again on Monday, Patrick Corbin, the man who for the 2021 regular season was dead last among qualified pitchers in Major League Baseball in earned run average. It is in fact looking like he'll be the Nats. Opening day starter. I think opening day starter, it can be kind of an overrated thing, but you know, it is a symbolic thing for a lot of people. And in theory, right, your opening day starter is your ace or the closest thing that you have to an ace. So I think it says a lot about a lot that the Nats quote unquote ace is a guy who finished dead last among qualified pitchers last season in ERA. Now, look, we know that Patrick Corbin can be much better than that. He has been much better than that, including for the Nats in 2019. At this point, though, is there any reason to think that Corbin won't be the Nats starting pitcher on April 7th?
1: No, not unless something strange happens. He's got one more start now. He pitched on Monday, and I thought looked pretty good. He had one bad inning. He was hurt by his defense. Josh Bell made one of his two errors on the day, and there were a couple of ground balls that just got past, you know, infielders, and could have changed a lot. Now then he then gave up a three-run bomb, which is not good, and that was such a problem for him last year. But overall, he got through his first three innings on 29 pitches. He was getting ahead in the count. I do see him being better at commanding his fastball down in the zone, which was a, an issue for him last year. That makes it look more like the slider and allows the slider to now be more effective. He's mixing in some cutters, I think, for the first time now. So I'm seeing a better version of him. It's hard to really evaluate when you know, you're in these spring training games and you're working on stuff and you don't know who these guys are that you're facing. So maybe it all blows up come opening day against what looks on paper like a pretty good Mets lineup. But I've got to believe that he is better than what we saw last year. I think everybody understands that. And there were some good signs towards the end of the year on that. Now, does that mean he's going to be the ace of the team this year? No, I don't think anybody realistically sees that. But given the options, you don't want to give that assignment to a kid. I don't know that Josiah Gray, that that's fair to him to throw that at him. He may start game two against Max Scherzer, which is going to be a, you know, major production as it is. And I just don't know that you want to be putting in Eric Fetty. I, I guess Annabelle Sanchez, it wouldn't phase him if he was the guy. That's no big deal. But look, Corbin should be able to handle the assignment from an emotional standpoint. The guy pitched in game seven of the World Series. I think he should be able to handle an opening day assignment. And the hope is give him a chance, try to avoid the big home run, the big inning, keep the ball down in the zone, and and we'll see what he's got. But for now, he is the most established, certainly the highest paid member of their rotation, and he's going to lead the way, I think.
0: He's entering his age 32 season, the fourth season of a six year, $140 million contract that he signed in December 2018. If he gets back on track and is good again this season, then great. There's no discussion to be had. If he doesn't, though, if he struggles again this season in what would be a, remember, a third consecutive bad season because he was really bad in the 2020 season, the shortened season. The Nats last season stuck with him. I mean, he was in the rotation the entire year. I mean, one thing, he has been durable from a health standpoint. Like, I give him credit for that. But do you think the Nats are just sticking with Corbin in the rotation come uh, heck or high water? Or do you think this season would be a season, if it goes poorly, that they, say, demote him to the bullpen or do something? Like, are they going to put up with a 5-plus ERA from Patrick Corbin again this year?
1: Well, what it'll amount to is this. Are there clearly five better alternatives than him at some point along the way? Maybe there will be. That would be a good problem for them to have if it comes to that. But if there aren't, I'm not so sure that they're going to say, "Okay, we're demoting you to the bullpen or even looking to make some kind of major roster move that costs them a ton of money just so they can put a, for example, Josh Rogers or another Josh Rogers type on the mound or, you know, to open up the rotation for Paolo Espino something like that. I would have to be, in my mind, a young guy who clearly deserved it over him. They certainly hope they don't find themselves in that position. But that's why it is kind of fascinating because typically somebody who struggles to that extent over a couple of years, you're thinking, well, he must physically not be the same guy. You know, like a a Barry Zito later in his career or a Tim Lincecum. And these are guys who dealt with injuries and they just weren't the same pitchers. That's not the case. Corbin was throwing 93 today. So that's not it at all. It's effectiveness. And I think as long as that's the case, they do have to stick with him because you have to, in the back of your mind, say he can give us innings and we just hope that he can be effective enough to give us a chance to win. And we don't have five starters who are clearly better than him. So yeah, every fifth day, Patrick, it's yours, you know, no matter what.
0: Do you think that they would trade him? Do you think that they would say, all right, he's rehabbed himself enough to where a contending team, especially a big market team that's willing to take on at least a good chunk of that contract would take him. See, to me, that would be the play. If he pitches well, don't wait for him to start struggling again. Trade him, get what you can for him, even if if you have to pay some of that contract. Do you think the Nats would do that or do you think that Corbin is here to stay?
1: Well, so you would have to pitch well enough, obviously. You'd have to find a team willing to take on some of the money. I don't think anyone's going to take on all the money. And so now you are eating some of that for the purpose of getting rid of him. But yeah, there's a scenario there that if it really played out well, you could do that. But then there's also part of you and you know, we're talking dream scenarios now. If Corbin is effective again, if Steven Strasburg does come back and pitch this year with any effectiveness and they're both under contract for a couple more years. If you're Mike Rizzo, you're thinking, well, you know what? Maybe come 2024, I actually have a rotation of Strasburg, Corbin, Cavalli, Gray and Rutledge and Juan Soto still on my roster and we might actually win with that team. It's a fine balance. They're a fine line they're going to have to walk. But I can tell you, they would love to at least face that dilemma as opposed to what they're facing right now.
0: I've said this to you before. It's hard to believe that this is just who Patrick Corbin is now. Like, it's hard to believe that he's this bad, you know? But the level of bad was so extreme that you don't know what to think. And it was a second consecutive really bad season. And if none of this is rooted in injury, you know, that's almost like a bad thing. Like, at least with Strasburg, you can say, well, he's been hurt. With Corbin, it's like, no, he's physically fine. I mean, I know Ryan Zimmerman said that Corbin got abused in 2019, but as best as we could tell, Patrick's fine and he's struggling and there haven't seemed to be any answers. So in that way, it's almost worse for him. But, you know, we're rooting for the guy. I guess another good thing, too, is this. A lot of times when a guy's career falls off, things can get ugly And things start being leaked to the media in terms of what's going on behind the scenes. You haven't had anything like that with Corbin. It feels like everyone's on the same page. They're all working toward getting him back to where he was. It's just a matter of getting him back to where he was.
1: Yeah, he has a lot of support within that clubhouse. Guys feel for him. They know how hard he's working at this. He's not giving up on any of this. And he's said all the right things. He's doing the right things. They are behind him, no doubt. I I have no sense that there's anybody feeling like he has, uh, you know, let them down or that he hasn't been serious about trying to get better. I think the ultimate question here is, like you said, in Strasburg's case, the only times he's ever been bad in his career is when he's been hurt. In Corbin's case, he's been bad when he's healthy. And so at some point, are you saying, well, maybe the good years, 18 with Arizona and 19 with the Nats were the anomaly, and this is just who he is. And that's an indictment. And it also would suggest that he hasn't been able to figure out another way to go about it. I sort of asked that to Davey at one point this spring that can you look at him and say what he did successfully a couple years ago? Is it the right thing to do to try to replicate that? Or at some point, do you have to look at it and say it's time to make some adjustments and adapt as a pitcher, as most pitchers do have to do as they get older? And Davey brought up the whole lack of injury and the velocity being there as evidence that, no, he should stick with what has worked before He's just got to perfect that and be better at it. We'll see. If that plan isn't effective, then you got to find some other way to go about it. And I don't know what that other way would be in his case.
0: You tell us what you think. You can hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email us as well, NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. If you would like to sponsor the Nats Chat Podcast, email Tim Shovers and uh, see what uh, the Nats Chat Podcast can do for you. The email address again is NatsChatPodcast.com at gmail.com. You can get yourself a NatchChat Podcast t-shirt by going to natschatpodcast.square.site. Uh, as we mentioned on the last episode of the podcast, a new red Natch Chat Podcast t-shirt is on the way, so be on the lookout for that. You'll be able to get it at site. If you are listening to this podcast and aren't yet subscribing to it, please consider doing that. Subscribing to the podcast costs you nothing. Make sure that you never miss an episode. We are going to be back on radio this season. In fact, starting this Sunday at 9, 106.1 ESPN in Richmond. So for those of you who listen in the Richmond area, the best of the Natch Chat podcast will air Sunday morning at 9. If you're out of the Richmond listening area, you can listen to ESPN Richmond on ESPNRichmond.com. All Nationals radio highlights on Natch Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Natch Chat podcast. 2-1. Swinging a high drive center field deep. Nimmo going back on the run. Warning track near the wall, at the wall. It is gone. That one clears the batter's eye over the 4.05 mark in straightaway center field. What a blast for Lane Thomas. His first home run of the spring. He drives in two. And the Nationals on the board lead at 2 to nothing.
3: Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium?